Well, if you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, and we're looking this evening at chapter 2, picking up on where we left off last Lord's Day evening, and we're looking together uh, this evening at 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 through 16, 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 16, and as usual, I know that you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me as we look at this together. And here, as the Apostle has been giving a defense of his ministry in the face of those who have attacked him to a congregation that was very dear to him, a congregation that he had um, personally invested in, which was not always true with the ministry of the Apostle Paul. There were congregations he had never met. And yet this congregation was experiencing um, some sort of attack on the apostolic ministry and in, in that sense was seeking to undermine Uh, the teaching and the gospel and the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And so Paul, as we have seen uh, most recently, gave what seems like an overly zealous defense of his ministry on a prima facie reading, and yet one that is necessary because there were teachers who were saying that Paul was only in it for the money or was trying to make a name for himself or was coming with deceiving words, coming... Um, with words uh, of flattery or other wrong motives. And so Paul has defended his ministry against those attacks. And now he turns uh, and focuses his attention on the ministry in relation to the people here in this church in Thessalonica. And notice in verse 13 he says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them. At last, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, when I was a uh, new pastor, a young pastor, I was engaged in a teaching opportunity, and Uh, During a time of engaging in questions and answers, I had taught something that the Apostle Paul had uh, emphasized on the doctrine of election. I think it was out of Romans 9. And and a man who was present at this meeting said, well, that's Paul. I want to know what Jesus says. And I, I remember bracing myself and thinking, here we go. Um, Most recently, a well-known speaker, uh, female speaker who has uh, a lot of notoriety in the broader church, made the statement, too many people prefer Paul over Jesus, but I prefer Jesus over Paul. Um, a, A sophisticatedly subtle undermining of the Apostle Paul. And it's interesting because this was at the heart of 20th century liberalism, theological liberalism. J. Gretchen Machen in his uh, really profound book, uh, What is Faith, writes this. In recent years, this is well over 100 years ago he wrote this. In recent years, there's a tendency to disassociate Paul from Jesus. 
He says a recent historian has entitled Paul the second founder of Christianity. If that's correct, then Christianity is facing the greatest crisis in its history. For let us not deceive ourselves. If Paul is independent of Jesus, he can no longer be a teacher of the church. Christianity is founded upon Christ and only Christ. You see, uh, there has always been a propensity for people to undermine the apostolic ministry, even as Paul was experiencing at that time and in that day. And so having defended his ministry and his motives for gospel ministry, um, wanting to glorify God and please God, wanting to do his ministry before the face of God, knowing that he would answer to God for those motives, the apostle now turns to the people who had received him and had received his ministry, and he is thanking God together with Sylvanus and Timothy for God's work of grace in them that they received the ministry of the word from him in much affliction and that it had transformed them and changed them. Now, I want us to consider tonight just a few things. First, I want us to consider the apostolic ministry of the word. And then second, I want us to consider the reception of the apostolic word. And then finally, I want us to consider the opposition to the apostolic word. The apostolic ministry of the word, the reception of the apostolic word, and the opposition to the apostolic word. We'll notice that Paul now says in verse 13, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Now, The Apostle Paul, it's been rightly said, was a one-thing man. Uh, He had determined to know nothing among the churches except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He had his face, as we heard this morning, set on preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. Nothing would move him from that. The Apostle Paul, in one sense, had a very boring ministry description. If you asked him what he did in ministry, he'd say, I do one thing. I preach the gospel. I preach the whole council as it focuses and centers on Jesus Christ and him crucified. And when Paul says to them that he is thankful to God for their reception of the word which you heard from us, he is intimating that they had heard the preaching of the gospel through the apostle and that they had welcomed it joyfully, that they had received it knowing that this is what God had appointed Paul to do. And there's a word here for us because we live in a day when there are a myriad of organizations, so-called churches, that are not given to the pure preaching of the word and are not given to the preaching of the gospel, but are given to storytelling and entertaining and dynamic lecturing and every other thing that poses as a counterfeit of the apostolic ministry. And The apostle was well aware that in his day there were those charlatans who were posing. He says in another place that we were not like so many peddling the word. There were many that were peddling the word. He will talk about those in in the church to Philippi while he's in chains, and he'll say, some preach Christ out of envy, supposing to add affliction to my chains, that they were trying to hurt the apostle Paul and outdo him and one-up him. Their hearts weren't right. And yet Paul says, just so long as Christ is preached, um, in this I rejoice. The Apostle Paul models for us what a minister of the gospel should be. He should be a man who is given entirely to the ministry of the word and only to the ministry of the word. 
so that when we listen to gospel ministers, the litmus test of whether or not they really have the stamp of divine approval is whether or not they are really only preaching the word of God in all of its beauty and glory and symmetry as it centers on Jesus Christ. And so there was an apostolic ministry of the word. Now, the apostles had a unique apostolic ministry. Jesus had called them uniquely. He had entrusted this ministry to them. They are foundation stones in the new covenant church. Uh, the apostle will tell us in Ephesians chapter 2 that the, the church is built on the foundation of Christ and the apostles. That that's, that's the totality of the foundation of the church so that everything on which the church rests and your faith rests for all eternity is built on the ministry of Jesus and the apostles giving the full revelation of God. So that what the apostles were doing, they were laying the foundation for the church throughout all time till Christ comes again, will rest on. Um, so convinced of the ministry that God had called him to was the Apostle Paul that he will actually equate the ministry of the word as the ministry of the word of Christ in his letter to the Colossians. He'll say, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. He's not talking about the red letter words alone. He's talking about all of scripture, Genesis to Revelation, which had not yet been written. All of it, it's all the word of Christ. And the Apostle Paul will say that God had given him this ministry to fulfill, in Ephesians 3, to fulfill the word of God. Paul was conscious that what he was doing was the very same thing that Isaiah had done and Jeremiah had done and Ezekiel had done and David before them had done and Moses before them had done, that he was part of that long train of holy men that the, the Holy Spirit was carrying along, superintending as God was breathing out his word through them so that Paul wasn't coming with anything that originated in his mind. Not one thing that the apostle writes that we read in the apostolic letters originated in the mind of the apostle Paul or Peter or John. It all originated with the Holy Spirit working through them to give us that full revelation. Um, it's comforting to know that the apostle Peter said what he said, I believe in 2 Peter, when he says our brother Paul, who remember had rebuked him in Galatia, so a very high commendation for somebody that rebuked you publicly to your face for compromising the gospel. That Peter says about the Apostle Paul that our beloved brother Paul wrote some things that are difficult to understand. Whew. There are difficult things that Paul wrote, and Peter thought so. Which untaught and unstable men twist, rest, twist to their own destruction. And so Paul here, notice, he says that he thanked God that when they received the word of God from him, they accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. So that Paul is saying what we are ministering is not our own word, and you have acknowledged that, 
that this is the very word of God. Now, you could say, wait a minute, that's a circular arg- argument. I could see if, if you're one of those logical types, you say, well, that's just a circular. Anybody can say, what I'm saying is the word of God. Uh, the whole history of false religions is built on people saying that their God has revealed this. Um, and it is a circular argument. And it's not the only argument that we have for the word of God being the word of God. There are arguments that we can make, uh, historical arguments, intertextual arguments. There are all kinds of arguments that we can make, but here the apostle is focusing on the objective, authoritative revelation of God. And, And here's the wonderful thing. If someone doesn't think this is God's word, it doesn't change the fact that it is God's word. So that if you never existed, it would not in any way whatsoever impact what this is. It is the word of God, and so the apostle can praise them for receiving it as such with all of the humility and faith and grace with which they received it. Now, this is the same apostle, remember, who went after he preached the gospel in Thessalonica um, in Acts 17, went to the next town where the Bereans were. And remember, he preached the word to them, and, and Luke tells us that they were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica because they received the word with all readiness, eagerness, and they searched the scriptures to see if these things were so. So that the apostles never came to any church and said, I'm an apostle, you'll believe whatever I say, so just be quiet and believe it. But that they praised the people for receiving it, welcoming it, and pouring over it themselves to make sure they were testing it together with everything else God has breathed out in Scripture about Jesus Christ. And so there is the apostolic ministry of the Word. Now, let me say this. This might be helpful, and it's something I learned as a young Christian, and yet I've not heard mentioned often. Those that tend to pit the teaching of Jesus, who, by the way, never wrote anything personally himself, even though he wrote the whole Bible— Jesus, none of the books we have were penned by Jesus, even though he's the author of all of them, and they're all about him. Um, But those that like to pit the teaching of Jesus against the teaching of the apostles fail to see this, that in the gospel records, what we have is a history of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a history of his earthly ministry. It is not a theologically robust commentary about everything that he taught or said. In fact, Um, sometimes people will say, well, Jesus didn't preach the gospel all the time, so we don't need to. Sometimes he just says this, Jesus is the gospel. He's going to the cross. Every step, he is stepping to the cross, so everything that he says along the way culminates in what he does at Calvary. And then the apostles are the divine interpreters, the inspired interpreters of the facts of the ministry and person of the Lord Jesus. Gerhardus Voss puts it this way, the relation between Jesus and the apostolate is in general that between fact to be interpreted and the subsequent interpretation of that fact. I think that's beautiful. It shows the progress of revelation. The apostle knows that, that what he and Peter and James and John are giving us is they're giving us the divinely inspired commentary, the full revelation of what we only have in part previous to the apostolic ministry. Now, 
Um, let me just say this. There is a tricky place in the scriptures. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 12, where, and maybe you've read it at some point, where Paul says, um, this, uh, this I don't say, but the Lord says, and he talks about when someone can be divorced. And then he says, now I, not the Lord, say. And some people have said, see, Paul says he's saying something that the Lord didn't say. No, what Paul is doing is he's saying, let me first reiterate what the Lord said during his earthly ministry, that the only grounds for divorce is adultery. Now let me, as his inspired apostle, say something further that he didn't say during his earthly ministry. And so, again, Paul is building on the revelation by the work of the Spirit in him, giving us everything that the Lord wants us to have. Now, there is... um, there is the reception of the apostolic word. These people are being praised. What, what makes a true minister's heart happy? To see the people of God living deeply in light of the word of God. That's it. That, that, that's what makes a minister, a true minister, more thankful to God than anything, is when the people of God are giving themselves deeply to the word of God and are being changed by the word of God. Notice that Paul says, um, when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. So Paul was noticing their lives were changing. Remember he said at the end of chapter one, how you, you turn to God from idols, to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his son from heaven, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Their lives had been transformed just like his had. He had experienced the power of scripture in his soul. You know, that's what it means to be a Christian. And there's many ways we can can define what it means to be a Christian. There are many marks we can talk about. Uh, Certainly the new birth we can talk about, but, but fundamentally at ground zero, what it means to be a Christian is that you have been and are being changed by the word of God that you have joyfully welcomed, received, and believe. Um, I remember for me as a young Christian, having grown up in a strong Christian home, and children, listen to this, because you can grow up in a strong Christian home and, and go through the motions um, and then being converted and, and remembering, and maybe you've had this experience that for the first time in my life, the Bible was an open book. Everything that I had just seen as words was full and real and alive. I remember being overwhelmed, and maybe I've told you this, sitting on the couch as a new Christian, maybe three months converted, reading the parable of the pearl of great price and the treasure in the field and, and about the man passing by the field and seeing the treasure and going and selling all that he has and coming back for it and realizing that Jesus was the treasure and he was there the whole time and I couldn't see him. But now the word of God is working in you as the spirit of God is working in you. And Paul is praising them that they received the word which was at work in them who believe. Now, notice if you look back at 1 Thessalonians 1.8, I think Paul is picking up 
here in this section what he already touched on back in verse 8 of chapter 1. Notice this. He says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. You know, it's very interesting. By the way, this is um, arguably Paul's first letter that he ever wrote to a very young church. And, And 1 Thessalonians has often been neglected as a book, as Second Thessalonians has been, but, but some of the richest teaching on Scripture in the life of a believer and the life of a church is in this book. And what Paul praises them for is that from them collectively, God's word had sounded forth. What a testimony. That I've heard in my short Christian life so many things people say about this church or that church. Isn't this wonderful? And, you know, I love how this church does this, and I love how this church does this, and they have a beautiful building, and I love this, and I love that. And I almost never hear. You know what's awesome about that church? The word of the Lord sounds forth from that church. I almost never hear that. That from those people, the word's being carried out from them out to those around them in the community, and their faith is so evident, Paul says, you don't even need us to say anything about you. Their lives had been so changed that it was evident to people around them. Something's happened to them, and the only explanation Paul can draw is that God's word had changed them. You know, I was thinking this week, we often write people off, um, if not verbally, in our hearts. And, and we'll think things like, well, he or she'll never change. Or we'll treat people that way. Whenever we think that, even subtly, or say that, we are revealing something that we believe about the word of God and the gospel and ourselves. And, and what we're ultimately saying if we say that is, God's word is not powerful enough to change the worst person. And God's word is not powerful enough to change me. Because if I don't believe that it can change anyone else, then I'm not believing that it's changing me. And if I want to change, and I want to grow, and I want to become more like Christ, then there is one thing I desperately need, and that is to be in the word of God, often, meditatively, and with reflection and a desire to have it transform me so that I want to be changed by the thing God has appointed for that transformation. Now, the Bible doesn't work ex opere operato. Uh, The Pharisees read the Bible, and they didn't know Jesus. I remember hearing Bruce Waltke tell a story about being in Israel, and he was working on his Proverbs commentary, I'm sorry, his commentary on the Psalms, no, the Proverbs. And uh, he said, you know, by the end of that, I had parsed every word, I had done all the exegesis, I had written an entire commentary, and he said, and I was no closer to God after it. And he said, one night, a rabbi, he was in Israel studying Hebrew for that commentary, a rabbi he had gotten close to came to his room, and he said, I hear you quote the scriptures in Hebrew constantly, you must, how much of the scriptures do you have memorized? And he said, for the next I don't know how many hours, that man sang the Psalms from front to back 
in Hebrew. And he said, and he was an atheist. So we don't come to the word just thinking as long as I'm reading and going through the motions. We come knowing it's God's word. We come bowing before him and we come wanting to be changed by it. Now, notice this just briefly. Third, there's a reception of the apostolic word in the midst of the opposition to the apostolic word. Notice what Paul says. He says, he says you brothers, verse 14, became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. You suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they might be saved. Now, someone asked me last Sunday night, in a day of anti-Semitism, what do we do with a passage like this? And I said, I, I see the tension, I feel the tension. Um, a hateful anti-Semitism is evil, as is any other form of bigotry toward any other image bearer, no matter what their ethnicity. And yet, in the scriptures, there are these very clear statements that the Jewish people, especially in the days of the apostles and Jesus, and even before throughout their history, um, acted in, at many times and in many ways as the enemies of God, the God who had set them apart, the God who had called them to be a special people, the, the God who had given them his promises and his, and, his, and his worship and his word, the oracles of God, the covenant sign, all the privileges, all the benefits, all of it, preparing them for Jesus. And, and Jesus comes and they hate him. And they, they cry out, crucify him, crucify him. And and Jesus, who is a Jew, he's the Jewish redeemer, uh, prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem because of their wicked rebellion against God. And the apostle Paul is a Jew, and this same Paul had a heart longing for the salvation of the Jews. Um, Romans 9, 1 through 4, he said that he could, if it were possible, he, he could wish, if it were lawful and possible that he could be cut off for the sake of his brethren, his countrymen, according to the flesh, who were Israelites. And yet the same apostle, everywhere he went with the gospel, everywhere he took the truth of Christ, crucified and risen to the nations, was constantly opposed by his countrymen. So that all Paul could conclude, as Jesus himself concluded, and again, under inspiration of Scripture, is that they had become the enemies of God. Notice the language. They killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and oppose all mankind by hindering us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. Notice this last verse. So as always, to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Now, Paul may be speaking about the forthcoming destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, he may be talking about future judgment, but whatever he's saying, he is noting that opposition to the gospel is deserving of the greatest condemnation because God's heart is for the salvation of not just Jews, but Gentiles, and opposing what God is doing in the world is one of the greatest sins that you could ever commit, no matter who you are. Um... It's interesting, here, these two things are going together 
Um, we thank God that you received the word that's changing you. And, and then this section about affliction, how do they go together? Here's how they go together. Paul is not just praising them for receiving the ministry of his word. He's praising them for doing it in the most difficult of circumstances. You know, it's very easy for us to go home to the comfort of our homes and sit in our cozy living rooms, and I like a cozy living room, and open our Bibles and pour over them in freedom and go down to coffee shops in Chattanooga, and I like to go to coffee shops in Chattanooga and have our scriptures open and all covenant college kids out there with their theology books, and, and, and all over America it's like that. Not always like the South, but it's like that. And it's a very different thing to be in that time and that circumstance or in one of the countries on the face of the earth where your life is on the line if you receive God's word as it's written in scripture. I saw a video recently. I don't know if you saw this. Uh, It was a video of some Chinese Christians. I'm not sure if they were Uyghurs. I think they belonged to the Uyghur group there, the persecuted group in China. And they were receiving for the first time boxes of Bibles. It sent chills up my spine. They were, they were laughing and, and singing and the joy was explosive just to have a copy of scripture. My friend Burke Parsons often says, you know, while everyone is out there looking for a revelation from God, we all have a revelation from God and it's collecting dust on our shelves. So what would the apostle say to us tonight? He would say, be a people of the word. Let that mark you. If people thought about you or me, would they say, you know what I think about that person? I think they're really into X, Y, or Z, or I really think they love Scripture. They love the Word of God. They love the people of God. They are men and women of faith in the Word and the Gospel. Or are we known for other things? You see, that's what the Thessalonians were known for. They had become an example, a young church. Wouldn't it be beautiful if people on Signal Mountain said, you know what, I don't know all that's going on in Wayside, but I know those are people of the word. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you have made us to hear the voice of your Son in the Scriptures. Lord Jesus, you said, my sheep hear my voice and they know me, and I call them by name and they follow me. And we thank you that you have given us not just minds but hearts, that know that this is your word. We thank you that you have opened the eyes of our hearts to see the glory and beauty of the gospel and the truth of your grace and mercy, Father, in the Lord Jesus. We thank you that you have not left us in the dark, that you have not left a veil over our hearts so that we cannot see. We thank you and praise you, our God, and yet we pray tonight that you would make us a people of the word. We pray that you would make us to love your word, to abide in it, to meditate on it, to read it often, to lay it up in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Our God, would you send your spirit to cause your word to work in us effectively? And would you make us men and women 
of faith even in the midst of affliction. We pray, our God, that you would do this and all other things that you want to do in us for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.